0: This service. Um, I want to make things just a little bit uncomfortable. I love that. I love a little tension in the room. You know, <laughs> you don't have to answer this out loud. In fact, it might be better if you don't. But I have, you know, as we're talking about the big questions that kind of our generation is asking. Here's a good question, right? Can Republicans and Democrats belong to the same church? Yep. Hmm. Now, if you look outside. And you listen to the pundits, which you probably shouldn't, <laughs> you'd, you'd kind of get one answer, right? Everybody should become an independent. Everybody should become an independent. <laughs> yes, that's right. But that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because even as we went through COVID, another question I think we could ask is, well, what about your stance on masks? Can those people go to the same church or vaccines? or of what you think about Dr. Fauci. Evidently, that's a big controversy. Can those people that have differing opinions on those things go to the same church? I mean, we can't deny the polarization of our society. That's real, we can see it, it's, it's huge. And as much as I'd like to say it's never been worse, I'm not convinced of that. I've, I've read history, I've listened to podcasts on history and I'm kind of thinking, you know, divisiveness has always been there you know I mean you can see that throughout especially our nation's history but the rift does seem to be getting wider it seems to be getting more hateful and more difficult to bridge the gap and just so you know no neither party is innocent in this Um, (laughs) it's not like we can look at one and go well there's Jesus's party you know (laughs) these are just a couple of the easy ones right But if we were to ask other questions about could these same, if you have different views about other issues, could you go to the same church? Can you worship together? Like, you know, your stance on immigration, open borders, closed borders, build a wall, tear the wall down. That's an interesting one. Can those people, if on different sides of that issue. Welfare. about welfare? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or social safety net. Man, that's a tough one, right? Taxes. School choice vouchers, there's a fun one here in Iowa right now, you know. Um, anybody else hate this question? <laughs> anybody else like, I would rather us move on right now and just, let's stop talking about, Amy. I love this because these are where Amy's like, please put another slide up. I don't like looking at that anymore. <laughs> okay, let's move on to some easier questions then. What about people, can we worship together if we have different views of baptism? Because, you know, there's crazy Lutherans down the street, and they baptize kids. There's some in the room right now, and you know who you are. (laughs) But, you know, we've got it all figured out, and we baptize only those people that profess Jesus because evidently they baptize children and have no Bible behind why they would do it. There are (laughs) verses that they use, just so you know. It's not completely out of hand. Um, Or what about we had communion this morning? and we could get really fun and complicated and talk about the catholic view of transubstantiation or the lutheran view of consubstantiation or zwingli's view of the memorial and all this fun stuff but if you have different views of what's actually on this tray can you worship together and of course probably the greatest controversy to ever hit the church ever what music do we sing <laughs> <laughs> that's one of them too. Calvinism. Oh my gosh. We could, you know, the list goes on. Which music is right? Which, uh, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Um, which Bible translation is the right tri- translation to use? I mean, there are churches where that is like, there's only one. Um, it gets complicated, doesn't it? Very quickly. And as we look at these hard questions, I know for me, oftentimes, I would love to just be like, la, 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 I'm not going to look, I'm just going to ignore. But if we're real, people around us look at the church and how we answer these questions and how we respond. And they have questions about us, don't they? They see how we're responding and they kind of go, hmm, really? I mean, we have to acknowledge the days of asserting our influence to force people to our way of thinking is done, rightfully so. Steve talked about that last week and how much damage has been done in the name of Jesus when Christians tried to force our faith and beliefs on people using the sword or using you know, social pressure. I recently ran across a quote It's from, from a book called A Very Brief Account of the Destruction of the Indies. And a Spanish priest, uh, he recounts his experience witnessing Spanish rulers cut off the hands and noses of indigenous American men, women, and children who refused to convert to Christianity and comply with their laws. And the priest tells the story, he says, the cacique, the, the natives, without any further deliberation told him, we have no mind to go to heaven for fear of meeting with such cruel and wicked company Christians as they were but would rather choose to go to hell where he might be delivered from the troublesome sight of such kind of people. I'd rather go to hell than follow your Jesus. Okay. You know, but if we can't or shouldn't use the sword to force people to believe, what are we to do? Because it doesn't take long to look around us. We are in a, well, kind of, we're getting there, a post-Christian culture. You know, I listened to somebody talk about, you know, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, you moved to a new community, and one of the first things you did was you found a church because that was your community. The church was it. And so in that church, you would find your realtor to help you find a house. You'd find your banker to give you a loan. You'd find your business connections. Those days are done here in our country. That's done. And we look around us, and because we don't see that social pressure anymore, Things change for us in how we present Jesus to the world. But one of the big questions I think we're seeing in a post-Christian culture is how can Christians preach a message of unity and reconciliation when the church itself is so divided? I think we all agree on that question, don't we? Do we agree with the premise of that question? That when you look around, I mean... um, You know, uh, This was funny. In our message community this week, Steve Rogers said, he said, well, I'm in a good place. Everyone should just agree with me. (laughs) And I said, I agree with you, Steve. They should agree with me. (laughs) But, you know, as I I began to think about this, I I looked and I went to, you know, the great theologian Google to see how... To see how well the church is divided and I did a quick search and I said churches near me and I stopped counting after I got to 80 in our immediate area and the fourth page of results and guys we're not even in the Bible belt here (laughs) exactly 79 wrong ones (laughs) there was a running joke in the south there was a running joke in the South that if you passed by a church and you saw that the church was named something like Harmony or Unity, you can guarantee it was started from a church split. <laughs> you know, churches can find every reason in the world to be divided, and we do race, politics, tradition, socioeconomic status, age, wine or grape juice blue or brown carpet, pews or chairs. And as we think about this, yeah, we may have a few laughs and think about the silliness of some of it. But what's not funny is that we would be foolish to think that the world isn't paying attention when we as followers of Jesus can't get along. Man, they are watching and I don't know if you know this, but if you look in the New Testament, there are almost 130 passages that talk about unity. Hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a pretty serious subject there if it's that men- mentioned that much. And I think, you know, hearing this, you might think that the answer to all of this is then everybody just needs to start believing the same thing, listen to the same music, read the same Bible translation, read the same theology <laughs> books, and you know what? Boom. whammo, o I mean, it's almost was the answer, we all have to think the same. But we know that's not realistic. Mm-hmm. We know that. We know that that's... Even if you could, it wouldn't happen for long. And what, we're, what that's trying to create is uniformity, which is not what we're after. Everyone being exactly the same. That's absurd. I mean, you can't even make the case that that's how God desires it to be. I mean look look at creation. I mean, to be fair, if Brent was in charge of creation, we would probably have one flower because really how many more do you need? Just one sufficient. Mm-hmm. And do we really need millions of different types of insects? Nah, get one or two. But you look at creation and you see how God designed the world to be. And you see the beautifulness, the beauty in this diversity, this beauty in non-uniformity, and yet it's still united. There's still unity within his creation. You could even just take a moment to look around the room and just look and see how God really designs it to be. I mean, even think about Jesus when he called his 12 disciples. There's, I mean, yeah, they were all uh, Middle Eastern men from Israel, But even among them, you had a few fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, a skeptic, a betrayer. I mean, there were very unique characteristics to these guys, not to mention the women that were also around him that were the first to announce the resurrection. And somehow, God used that uniqueness to take the message of Jesus into the world. You, I mean, think about that. You and I sit here today, 2,000 years later, because 12 plus, we'll say 120 after the ascension, 120 people that had known and followed Jesus, each unique, each gifted differently, each with a different outlook and background and Enneagram number and all that stuff. <laughs> and we sit here today because some way, somehow, they were able to present a message of unity a message that they all were able to get behind to say, this is what it's truly all about. So what is this? What are we talking about? And I mean, I think you already see why it's so important, but we'll dig in a little more even to see that. As I said, there are almost 130 verses on unity. One of the most powerful, I think, is in the Gospel of John. At the end of John, John 17, 16 through 18, you see this moment where Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples and Jesus is praying. And he knows the end is coming. He knows the betrayer's gone out and they're about to come arrest him. He knows he's facing the cross. And in this moment, he's praying. He's spending some time praying. And they go to the garden and you get a look inside the mind of Christ right before he's going to be arrested and crucified. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that to be a very interesting moment. If I knew I was about to die, I think my words would be very intentional, and I think that's what we see for Jesus in John 17, starting in verse 20. Look at what Jesus prays. He says, "My prayer is not for them alone." So he's saying it's he'd been praying, he'd prayed for his disciples, and then he says, "But you know, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also." For those who will believe in me through their message. So guess who he's talking about there? Us. Even 2,000 years later, he's praying for those who will believe because of the message of the disciples. He says that all of them may be, what's that word? One. Father, just as you and me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they would be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Just sit. Let's read that again. <laughs> let's just sit for a moment with the words of Jesus. Go back to that beginning slide there. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What a powerful message. I mean, that's the message right there, isn't it? I mean, we could go further. There's other passages in the New Testament. There's one in Acts where it talks about all the believers were one in heart and mind. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he sees disunity in the church, and he tells them, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And Peter even writes, he says, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, compassionate and humble. But you go back to the words of Je- I mean, they're all saying the same thing, and they're all saying something that I think, if we're really honest, that every one of us goes... I I think that's important. I should want it, which leads us to a first question of do we really want it? Think about that. Do we really want unity? Or do we want to make a point and be right? That's a tough question for me. Because I want to make a point, (laughs) if I'm honest. I want you to listen to how eloquent my speech is. I want you to listen to how reasoned and logical my argument is. And I want to persuade you to think just like me. Right? I mean, unity with me. me. I mean, it goes back to that, doesn't it? But is that really what we're talking about here? I don't think so. I mean there's something here that that we've got to wrap our minds around to to answer that first question about unity period what is unity and how how much do I really want it because I think we can take a step back and we we want that uniformity that's easy to see where we dress the same and talk the same and you know watch the same stuff and we're all you know that's the easy part but but That isn't unity. That's pseudo unity. I mean, that's the problem is that we think that's what we're after, but really that's just fake unity. And so what we do is we build these structures that we think everybody, you know, these fences to keep people in so that because that's what we think unity is, but that's really not unity. Because uniformity, what does that say to the world? I mean, just feed me, feedback to me now. If, if the world sees uniformity, what do they think? Drones. Drones. Follow-up. Clones, followers. Anybody think it's kind of weird? Yeah. We see the cults on TV, right? Yeah. We see the ones where everybody dresses the same and talks the same and all that, and we look at that and we go, that's just weird. And that's what the world sees as well. And, they, and the world is not stupid. The world looks at that, and they write it off immediately as the pseudo-unity that we say we claim. But what Jesus is talking about here is a unity that I believe transcends our humanness. I mean, it's, it's bigger, it goes beyond, it's something greater than what you and I can accomplish on our own. Because as we read that passage in John, what did Jesus say? He wants us to be united, to be, have unity, just as who has unity He and the Father. He doesn't mention the Spirit there, but let's go ahead and throw the Trinity in there. You know, that's the type of unity that Jesus is talking about. It's this supernatural type of unity that doesn't come because we all vote the same, that we all drive the same car, that we all, you know, even maybe attend the same church. There's a unity. There's something that draws us together, bigger, greater, outside of ourselves. Because you wouldn't look at the Trinity and say, well, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they're all the same. No, that's what original creeds were written about, which to try to figure it out. In fact, if you go look at them, they talk about there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three coexistent, co-eternal persons who are equally one God, but three persons. Different persons, they each have a differentness to who they are. And why is that important? It's because, as I said, we're talking about something different supernatural. It's a recognition that what draws us together is bigger, greater than anything here in the world. What draws us together is God and uniformity. Everybody acting the same is that pseudo unity because it's false unity because it's built on something other than Christ. We're being drawn. We're being pulled into something greater than ourselves. It's the unity of with Jesus, with God, with the Trinity. See, at the core of our beings, the focus of Jesus is strong enough to keep, to, to keep us one because there's a supernatural element to it. It can't be forced. It's something that is driven from within. And it's not even something that a formal contract can arrange. There's something different about it. And the unity of the Trinity also reveals something else to us, though, is that the unity doesn't mean a lack of diversity. It's not achieved in groupthink. Unity is actually achieved in diversity. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that. Unity isn't required if we force everybody to think like we are. But when we forge the bonds with one another and we refuse to compromise those relationships, with those who look different, think different, who disagree with us, that's unity. That's what unity is all about. In fact, our unity is most pronounced when we are united with people not like us. Because that is when Jesus is on display. I mean, just think for a moment in the world right now. In this room, we have Republicans and Democrats. We have people across every political divide. We have people from every socioeconomic class. We have people, you know, everywhere. This should be what elevates Jesus for the world to look and go, how do you guys keep that together? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it makes no sense for some of us to be friends, for some of us to consider one another family, and yet we are. Why, how is that possible? It's unity. It's that unity in the Trinity with God, because we have purpose to move beyond disagreements, and we can. Think about your family. Anybody's family here get along on everything all the time? How many of you disagree with your family at times and yet you still get together at Thanksgiving or Christmas? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. Why? Because you love them. They are family. And that's what we're talking about. Isn't it interesting to think about it that way? Because what does that mean when we are so willing to toss relationships? When we're so willing to just go, done with you. And yet with our family, man, they can just agitate the snot out of us. And we go back at Christmas. That's true. Yeah. There's something there that we need to bring into the unity of the body of Christ, us, that brings it to us. But you know, when we talk about uniformity, have you ever thought about this? Even not, it's false unity, but also, uniformity doesn't require grace. Right. Have you thought about that? Yeah. It really doesn't. You know what requires grace? Unity. It requires me to come to you humbly and graciously and loving. That's what it's about. I mean, when you have somebody who loves Jesus, but they hold a different position than you on heaven or hell, or they have a different position from you from end times, or they have a different hermeneutic in how to interpret some verses of the Bible, they still love Jesus, They're passionate about Jesus, but just as they read the Bible and they understand it and they interpret it, they realize that I'm over here and you're over here. What does that require in order for us to sit in this room together on a Sunday? Grace and love. What unity does is it always requires us to stop and evaluate what Is more important to me what is the highest and greatest value being right theological purity or seeing the image of a God in a person who thinks or believes differently than me to love despite disagreement I recently read a quote from John Wesley the great reformer in England and America and he said this, he said, Condemn no man for not thinking as you think. Let everyone enjoy the full and free liberty of thinking for himself. Let every man use his own judgment, since every man must give an account of himself to God. Abhor every approach in any kind or degree to the spirit of persecution. If you cannot, persuade, if you cannot reason nor persuade a man into the truth... Never attempt to force a man into it. If love will not compel him to come, leave him to God, the judge of all. And isn't that the truth? That's part of what we're saying. You see, we have to learn the difference between preferences and true heresy. Now, just to throw this out here, a couple things. Preferences are important. As we were talking this week I just I said to be fair, I don't think I could attend regularly a Catholic church. It's just not my speed, not my vibe. I didn't grow up with it. The mass is very structured and very rituals, very high church. I couldn't do that. That's not me. I like what we do here. But the question is, how do I view the Lutheran, the Methodist, the other Baptist, the Catholic? Do I sit here on my high throne and I go, well, we know who's got it right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or do we look and we say, I understand differences. I understand there are preferences. Any country music fans in here? I see those hands. Don't be, look at, why are some of you so shy? It's almost like, come on, get those hands up. Country music fans, let's be proud. There you go. I see those hands. How many of you would say, I just hate country music? There's a few of those hands too. I'm sorry for those that are married to one another. Man, that's tough. We'll have marriage unity next week. (laughs) We know the difference, right? I have this image in my mind when it comes to unity where it's kind of like this kind of like in our hands, the things we believe, the things we hold. And for some reason, sometimes we feel like we are the guardian and protector of everything. And so I have to hold tightly to this. And so when I hold like this, and I can feel the tension in my hands already, as I look around others that do things differently or still follow Jesus and don't believe like I do, I feel it's my responsibility to correct them. And make sure they come my way. But this is a horrible way to live. And it really discounts the power of the Holy Spirit of God. (laughs) To assume that God is... God For 2,000 years, God hasn't had you. It's been okay. He'll continue on without us, okay? (laughs) But I feel like in a lot of ways, we can hold some of our preferences. Whether or not we baptize kids or adults whether or not we believe the communion is actually the body and blood of Christ, the presence of the body and blood of Christ, or just a memorial. And we can hold these things a little more loosely and look at the 80-plus churches around us and think, you know what? There's a lot of people trying to follow Jesus just like I am. Now, granted, don't get me wrong, there's some real jerks out there. Those are usually the ones on TV. Turn them off. Those would be the ones that I think the Apostle Paul would say don't have anything to do with those people. We know them. They're jerks. They're not humble. They want to use the Bible as a weapon to bash you over the head. That's not us. We turn that off. We move on. We kick those divisions out. But for the rest of us, those who are just genuinely trying to follow Jesus, I think it changes our approach and how we deal with them and how we view them. And we look at Lutheran Church of Hope down the street and we go... Praise God for them. Praise God for their ministry. Praise God for the gospel that they preach and the impact that they're having in Grace West Church and the Catholic Church for those that are following Jesus and the community church and the Methodist church. And you know what? And there's a wide range of preferences out there and theological differences. But the thing is I said two weeks ago that it always comes down to is are we following Jesus? Now, does that mean we... We reduce this to the lowest common denominator of belief? Absolutely not. We're not talking about unity at any price. Sometimes there are reasons for us to speak up and speak out and call out things. Like I said, if you read the New Testament, um, there were moments where Paul did say, don't have anything to do with that person causing division. We need to make sure that we look at the divisive people and we don't give them space. So it's not unity at any price. We focus on the essentials. We recognize the difference between essentials and preferences, and we realize that unity is not the goal. That's not the end game. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the goal. That's why Jesus says in that John 17 passage, verse 21, he says, May they also be in us. You see, we're not just out here willy-nilly going, oh, let's just all believe the same thing. No, there's a center to what we're doing. And our oneness is dependent upon and directly proportional to our relationship with Jesus. And just like our relationship with God will impact our relationship with others, our relationship with one another will impact our relationship with God. You see, our goal is to become like Jesus together. Striving for unity, becoming one, is part of that process in becoming like Jesus. And then we realize that this is a work in progress. Jesus says, so that they may be brought to complete unity. It's hard work. It's not easy. Sometimes we have to swallow hard on these things. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's there. We've got it. We want to try and we want to work towards it. And I think we need to ask ourselves sometimes. Is this something to split over? And if not, what do I need to do to be an agent of unity and not division? We have to work at this. And what I want you to understand, just as I wrap up here, we're not saying disagreements won't happen. Anybody married? You know this, right? Disagreements will happen. Amen. But disunity doesn't have to. Anybody been in a relationship where a disagreement led to disunity? Painful, right? Unity is not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of love. Okay? That's what's important here. There's a right way and a wrong way for us to deal with these things, and the right way is for us to approach them in love. Um, I think sometimes we can look and we can ask, what is causing our disunity? Is it something within me? We're not always the most self-reflective. Is it our insecurity? Is it our fear? Is our, you know, whatever? Unity requires humility and gentleness and patience and mutual respect and love. And man, if we had a lot more of that in the world, how much different would things be? So, I'm just gonna jump ahead here. What I want you to understand is that the world is asking that question. They're looking at the church and they're going, why are there 80 churches when I Google churches near me? Right. And you know what I think our answer is, is? I think our answer is, well, there's 80 different ways to try to find Jesus and follow him. And that's okay. And I think we approach it with love. I think it's important for us to realize that a divided church is a defeated church with no power, you see, don't miss what Jesus said in John 17 because he talks about unity in a way, and he says that our unity, the world will know that God sent him. Do you catch that? There's power in that unity, and the disunity of the church is one of the greatest scandals that compromises our ability to do what Jesus has called us to do. In our disunity and division, we are impotent. But in unity, we can change the world. It's going to be uncomfortable. Does anybody know that? When you're with people who are different from you, don't think like you, it can be uncomfortable. Can we just learn to live in the discomfort a little bit? Can we do that? But I mean, think about what is possible. When you find a a church where you have people from all sides of the political spectrum, all sides of the socioeconomic spectrum. You have people from every tribe, nation, and tongue coming together week after week, talking together, worshiping together, growing together, giving together, all centered around the living Christ. What is possible? Everything. The world can be changed. And what I want you to know is this isn't really an optional thing. Jesus is calling us to it. And we need to ask ourselves, what am I doing to either help this or hurt this? Again, not at any cost. There are times we have to stand up, go back two weeks ago, talk about heresy, Jesus plus, Jesus minus. But right now, I hope that we see that when we consider the others around us who are following Jesus and just trying to do so as best they can, just like I am, that we can truly pray as Jesus did. Lord, make us one. Let's pray.